Uh, my friends, like always, I want to welcome you to gather around the Word of God. Uh, that being said, I've been in Central America all week. We got up uh, early and worked late, and there was no space in there for doing sermon work. And so we have a guest preacher this morning. Uh, I want to speak to you first before I bring him up about the importance of church planting. Um, I work, I serve on the church health committee of our presbytery, and I can tell you that we are closing churches left and right. Churches, churches in Mississippi, uh, churches in our area that are part of the EPC are shrinking, they're growing old, and there is not enough participation and membership and giving to keep the doors open. And so unfortunately, one of the things that I do as a member of the church health committee is help churches counsel them through the process of closing their doors and it is it's like a death it's sad can you imagine if you had worshiped somewhere forever and it comes down there's just 10 of you left and the pastor leaves and there's not money to pay for a new pastor and it breaks their heart what do we need to do when we see this happening you understand that christendom has come to an end in america christianity is no longer the predominant thought in america there are there are other things and um, in the face of this, what we can do to really reach our culture is to plant churches. Because churches, um, once they're planted there, they become an outpost for evangelism and mission work in that local community. And so I want to bring up to preach here Nathan Cotton. He is a friend of mine. He is a church planter who has been working at a church plant in Houston. And he is going into the belly of the beast, New England, <laughs> to plant a church an EPC church where he can preach the gospel. Now, um, uh, Nathan is going to be here uh, through uh, lunch today, and so I encourage you to speak to him about what he's doing in his church plant and think through how you personally might be able to be involved in that as we think through how our church can be involved in that church plant in New England. So if you would, welcome to the front my friend Nathan Cotton. Thank you, Tyson. Thank you, thank you. The belly of the beast, huh? Is that what? Hey, can I first just make some observations as someone who's been in church like their entire life? You guys have the greatest transitions from choir to contemporary. Man, that was magnificent. (laughs) Kudos. Thank you so much for the hospitality and just the opportunity to kind of stand here in Tyson's shadow and share with you. Some beautiful things from the scripture. So I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 8, as we get rolling today, this morning. I am from Texas. I am wearing my boots. Anyone else have boots on today? They're wonderful, but man, they're hot. I know what you're thinking. You're not from Texas. You have a man bun. I promise. I promise. I'm an elder millennial representing Houston, Texas. As we look at Matthew chapter 8, I want to get started in this regard. Let me set it up like this. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating about human beings is that regardless of our social economic status, racial status, ethnicity, backgrounds, we really have lots of things in common. And I think it's beautiful. And I think it points to the fact that we have a common creator who's ingenious, who's wonderful, who's beautiful. And all of those things are reflected in us as well. But I think one of the things that we have in common is that we all desire deeply to have control over our lives. We want to be in control. And as the New York Times columnist David Brooks says, he doesn't think it's a bad thing. Because either we want to be in control because we just want to be in control, or we all have a desired future. 
We all have this desired hope of how we want our life to turn out. And we want to reach that end. We want to have that life. And we think, which I think is a logical position, the more control that we have over our own lives, the more we will reach the end in which we really want. We want to, be, we want to have a life where we're not being oppressed, where we're free, where we're experiencing all of our hopes and dreams, not in a, not in a vacuum or an abstract, but in reality. I was very fortunate this past, well, a couple months ago, one of our friends, part of the benefit of being a um, church planner is people always give you wonderful gifts, and we had wonderful family that gave us a gift to go to Disney World. Now, my kids, 10, 8, 6, to them, this was the apex of their life, right? For me, it was, well, not necessarily that, but (laughs) we go to Disney World. Here's what I love about Disney World. One of the things I find so fascinating about Disney World is is really how adults act (laughs) at Disney World, right? Disney World is the only place in the world, it's the only park that I've been to, it's the only space I've been to where it's not just encouraged, it's not just acceptable, like it's a requirement for grown men to dress up like Obi-Wan Kenobi, build their own lightsaber for around $300, and then chase try to find Darth Vader in the park somewhere so they can duel with him, right? And it's, to- it's totally encouraged. It's like they're, it's, it's not just something that you're, 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 you just can do. It's something that you're supposed to do. And in a real way, listen, you know, in a context like this, that's comical, which I understand. But at Disney, it's beautiful. Why? Because in a real sense, when you're in a Disney park, life is very simple. The complexities, the... The, the different threats that we experience on a daily basis just aren't there. You know, no one's worried about all the complications at work. No one's worried about their stout, spousal frustrations. Nobody, nobody's worried necessarily about their wayward children and the direction in which they're going, whether they be adult children or younger children. Those things that come in and threaten the control that we have over life at Disney seem to just dissipate. But there's one big problem, and you know what it is. Eventually, you have to leave the park, and you have to go back home. And when you do, you know, like I do, all of the problems that threaten the control that we want to have over our life, they reappear, and they come back. Life has a way of presenting problems that you and I know all too well. All types of problems. One theologian said, we all have problems. We are the problem, or we live with the problem. And in a real sense, I think that's true. And these problems, they disable our ability to control our own life. And again, the big deal with that is it hampers where we want to go, where we think we should be. In Matthew chapter 8, we look at an instance where Matthew, I think, is going to address this in a very powerful way. In Matthew chapter 8, verses specifically 28 through 34, we're taken to this quaint city where Jesus is passing through. And in this city, there are two individuals whose lives are hopelessly out of control. They have lost every sense of sanity, every sense of stability and security that we can appreciate in this world. And they seem to be, if I can put it this way, completely lost causes. Like their lives have drifted in such a way that no one can help them. 
Even the people that believe in God himself have cast them out on the outside where they can live way far away so that they can do all the harm they want to themselves and they don't have to interact with the city that's nearby. It's a devastating situation. But I think it's one that even though we're far removed on the timeline of history from this particular event, I think it's something that we know all too well. So here's a question I want to unpack this morning. I want us to wrestle with a little bit. When your life is out of control, is there any real hope? When your life is out of control, is there any real hope? Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, I'm so thankful for Lakeside. I'm thankful for the passion and fervency for your mission that you have placed on their heart. Father, I ask that you would allow them to continue to participate in profound ways, domestically, internationally, in bringing forth your fame and your kingdom in cooperation with you like it's never been before. Lord, would you bless our time together this morning? Would we be encouraged where we need to be encouraged? Would we be hopeful where we need hope? And Father, would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Father, light me on fire and let my friends watch me burn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I forgot to read the passage. Let's read the passage first. How about that? Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 28. Matthew writes this, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gardenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding some distance away from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and they went to the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man, men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. One of the most interesting things about this passage, where we'll start, I guess, is just really relevant here and also in our own lives. You know, there are some situations in life that seem to be void of all hope. And I think in the first verse, Matthew brings it out very well. There are two men that approach Jesus, and again, they have a tremendously large problem. They both have been oppressed, threatened, and taken over by these demonic presences. Now, let's take a time out for a second, because there are some people in this room, and if they're not in this, if you're not in this room, you know people in other rooms that hear things like this in the scriptures and they say, Look, man, it's 2023. Like, do we really need to talk about demonic possession? Like, I'm sure there's a scientific explanation for what's going on here, right? Like, it's 2023. Should we still be talking about demonic possession and, and, and things of that nature, right? And I'm going to argue, yes, I think we should. And here are two just, two just mere observations in which I think we, this, is, this is something that we need to be thinking about. But also, let me say, hey, if you're here and you're hearing, like, okay, here's another weird thing in the Bible. Like, that's, hey, that's, I think that's a legitimate thought. It's okay. But also consider these two things, right? The first is this, that uh, 
Matthew's intention for writing the book is not the same as Tolkien's in writing The Lord of the Rings, right? He's not writing a fantasy novel. He's not writing anything other than what he believes to be a historical, accurate account of the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? There are no leprechauns in this book. There are no, there's no My Little Pony. There's no, there's no trolls that sing like Justin Timberlake flowing through the pages of his gospel. Like, so, so I think it's important to realize that we need to interpret based on what he is writing and how he is writing it. My first thought. My second is this. If, if, because oftentimes we'll hear things like the gospel's real intention was to get this new religion off the ground so they could gain political power. Which again, I think that's a legitimate thought. However, at the same time, think about it for a second. There are certain sects of Judaism that don't believe in, this, in the spiritual realm in the way in which Jesus articulates it. The Sadducees in particular, if you're familiar with that sect. So think about it. If you're trying to get a political regime off the ground... You don't take the head leader of that, polit- of, of that new religious movement and you have him interacting with demons. You just have him primarily interacting with the main physical enemy, which is Rome. But that's not what he's doing here. He's having Jesus interact with demons. Why? There's really only one logical explanation. Because Matthew's merely just writing what happened. He's writing what is true. All right, so time in. So the demoniacs, these demon-possessed men, represent, in a real way, people living with their lives absolutely out of control with zero hope. Now, again, you don't have to be demon-possessed, I don't think, to know this reality, to experience evil and frustration. Like, these are real things that we experience. Like, the feeling that you're losing grip on the control of your life or being thrown into chaos and confusion Like, these are real things that we experience. Again, I don't think you have to be demon-possessed to experience these things. Matthew never tells us how the demons came about, or whether it was through through the actions of the men themselves, or whether it was the actions of, of other people around them. But really, it doesn't matter, because what he's showing us is these two individuals in which their lives have been thrown into utter chaos, something that we understand. Dan Doriani writes this, a scholar, professor. He says, at the extreme... At the extreme, the less in ways our lives can become impaired and oppressed may not be the same as this demonic possession, but we do understand this in a very real way. He says that at the extreme, we can destroy ourselves in our day and age through alcohol and drug addiction, sexual compulsions and gambling addictions. These things can have a hold on us in a very similar way as the demonic possessions that we read about here in Matthew. He says we need help to break the grip of these powers. He goes on to say some sins can also control us in ways in which we ought not be controlled. Racism does this. So can pride. When every offense against our ego sends us towards the ditches of extreme anger or hurt, the same thing occurs. And then he says even milder Compulsions can do the same. They can wound us. Some of us feel like we have to accept every offer or attend every event until our schedules are, are full and so far out of control. Others stay up late night after night and thereby condemn themselves to a life of chronic weariness. No, you don't have to be demonically possessed to understand or to experience your life out of control. Your life not turning out the way in which you thought it would turn. And the demoniacs, they represent this in a very real way. 
They've been thrown into this chaotic situation. They're in this chaotic situation. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be much help for them. Everyone else has written them off. But what's interesting is Matthew's reminding us that while some situations seem like these are, these are situations without any hope, there's no situation that's hopeless when, when Jesus enters the picture. There really is no situation that's hopeless. Look what he says in verse 29. And behold, they cry out, they approach him. What do you have to do with us? Why do you bother us? Is another way you could say that. Oh, son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and they, the demons begged him. To me, it's just so interesting. And that word is going to come up a little bit later in a second. But the demons beg him, if you cast us out, send us, send us into the pigs. It's always surprising to me as you read through the Gospels. And if you haven't done so before, I'd invite you to do it. Reading through the Gospels, it's, it's so interesting how much, how much further ahead uh, the demons are than people as far as when it comes to information about Jesus and particularly accurate information about Jesus. I mean, the, Jesus uh, the, the demons, in a real sense, operate on a different level. It's just always so baffling to me how much they understand. They ask him essentially three questions. The two very similar. What are you going to do with us? Or why are you bothering us? And then have you come to torment us before the time? See, they recognize that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, and they know there's a day coming where they will judge him, and they, he will strip their freedom that they are currently enjoying, enjoying and take it away forever. Like, they know this. And not only that, that they're going to receive a terrible punishment along with all different evil regimes until it is no more. This is their fate. This is what is coming upon them. And they know in this moment they've come face to face with their greatest antagonist. What a wonderful movie right? this would be. I'm sure it is. I'm sorry. That was a terrible thought. This is why I stick to the script, right? Nevertheless, they've come face to face. And then they ask him the most bizarre thing in the world. Let's just be honest. Like, I know like, this is probably one of my favorite stories growing up. I remember listening to it on Adventures of Odyssey and you know, things like that. You guys don't know Adventures in Odyssey? I cannot help you if you don't know Adventures in Odyssey. But the craziest thing is they ask him, can you send us, send us in the pigs? Can you send us into this herd of pigs? Now the pigs, Mark tells us, because Mark and Luke also record this, this account. They fixate typically on one of the demoniacs more so. Uh, but, but they also record. And in their accounts, Mark's in particular, it tells us that there's around 2,000 pigs so we're not dealing with like a Charlotte's Web situation. This is a massive amount of, of pigs that is going to cause devastation to the entire economy of this, of this city. This is not no small thing. So why do they ask him, can we go in the pigs? And scholars have come up with, I think, two really great things, two really great answers. Again, we can't know for sure, but I think, I think two great suggestions would be this. The first is that the demons just can't help but destroy Satanic realm, the satanic realm, evil is just literally hell-bent on destroying whatever they can. If we can't destroy these humans any longer, please let us destroy the pigs. What's so fascinating is they have to ask for permission as well. But here's another reason I find really intriguing. See what you think about this. Another reason why they would ask this bizarre question. The demons are clever. I think that's a fair statement. Demons are clever. They know what they're doing. If Jesus kills all of the pigs by saving these two individual people, 
Who gets blamed when this economy crashes for this city? When the commerce struggles for the next decades? Who gets blamed? Well, Jesus does. So now Jesus is faced with a choice. What do I do? Do I save these individual people whose lives are so incredibly out of control? Do I bring them hope and forgiveness and beauty? Do I restore them to how I have made them in my own image? Or do I protect the commerce, the day-to-day operations? What do, what, what do I do? Jesus is faced with this decision. And he makes his decision pretty clear and pretty quick in verse 32 when he looks at them. And the same voice that brought all of creation into existence says one word to them, go. So what happens? They come out, they go in the pigs, they rush down, all of the pigs die. And the question, one of the questions I, I have as I read this, I'm like, why does Jesus answer their request? I mean, was there not another option? I can't think of one. I'm not baiting you. I'm just saying, like, was there potentially another option out there? And I think that's a really great question. Not just because I thought it, but because I think, it's a, I think it's a good question. Like, why in the world would he grant their request? And I think one of the reasons is this. Like the demons have already said, the day for their final judgment hasn't come yet. So that seems to be out of the, out of the equation. But second, I think maybe a more true answer is this. Jesus is doing something for his disciples and also for the, 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 the city themselves. He's both modeling and teaching for them something that's very important. You ready? That people, people, souls, image bearers of the Most High God, black, white, Asian, all different demographics, all different peoples, are more important than pigs. It's people. People captures the heart of God. And there are two people who are suffering immensely. There are two people who are catastrophically not living as in which they have been designed to live. And Jesus says, no more. Even if it disrupts the entire economy of this city, even if it throws them backwards into recession for years to come, these two are more important. These two. See, we read this story, I think, and it, look, maybe I'll just, let me put myself on the chopping block. I've read this story so many times. I love this story. And you know what I'm always enamored with every single time? Just how strong and powerful Jesus is. Man, casting out demons. I mean, he's like a living, walking X-Men. He's like, he, he's an Avenger. This is so wonderful and so great. But you know what caught my eye this time around? How kind he is. How he really is the God who leaves the 99 for the one. He really is the God who celebrates when one person comes to him versus the masses that don't. He truly is that God. See, I, think, I don't think that's out of course with, with his power. But at the same time, let's not miss his kindness and grace and beauty and just sheer concern for people whose lives have been thrown in the toilet. For people who lie, whose lives have been thrown into utter chaos. He cares deeply. Now listen to me very carefully. Because I don't know where you are and I, I'm not presuming to know where you are. Or the people in your lives. I'm not presuming that everyone is having the best week or the best day of their life. Some of you probably are, are, are thinking, yeah, my life is not as 
great as I want it to be right now. My life is pretty disorderly. Listen, can I just say something? Because I think here's the deal. Hear me. Sometimes if we're in a place where our life is out of order, the Bible is not encouraging. It's actually really discouraging. The Bible can be the most, it is the most beautiful, wonderful source of encouragement. It is the voice of God himself to us. But if we're in a bad place, sometimes we just can't hear it. And it stings. Because we look at this and we look at our life and we say, these are not compatible. Where are you? So can you just, if you're, in a, if you're in a place like that, can you just try to hear me for a second? Because I think this is very true. If Jesus can be so kind and so gentle, so present and so powerful in the lives of these two people who have been oppressed by demons and outcast by their society, could he not do the same for us? Could he not do the same thing for your loved one? Could he not do the same thing for your community? Yes, Jesus is powerful, but he's also so kind. And he's so gentle. And he's so sweet. He cares deeply. Now, let's circle back. Let's get back to our original question, okay? When our life is turned upside down, when it's been turned upside down, when our lives are out of control, like, is there any hope? And listen, resoundingly, hear me. Yes. Yes, there is. Because there's no life that is so far out of control that Jesus can't rescue. And that's speaking from what the Bible text is teaching us this morning. I'm also telling you from personal experience. Look, I may look like Brad Pitt, but I'm a mess. And Jesus is so kind and he's so great. There's no life that's so out of control that Jesus can't rescue it. Look at verse 33, which I think to me is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Look at verse 33. Their herdsmen fled. Going to the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. The way Matthew writes it, it's almost like the demon-possessed man was kind of an afterthought. Why? Because what are they primarily concerned about? I don't want to get blamed for our economy about to split because we just lost these, all these 2,000 pigs. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, verse 34. And when they saw him again for the second time, Jesus is begged. Except for what's the beg this time? What's the ask? Don't come back. Please leave and do not come back. What a bizarre, ironic turn of events. Mark and Luke give us a little bit more information as to what's going on. As the crowd is coming out, Mark tells us in Mark 5 that instead of running around and convulsing and harming themselves and threatening everyone like the two demoniacs were doing previously, now they're sitting down at Jesus' feet. They're clothed. They're in their right mind. The lack of control that they had has now been reestablished and reinforced. Their life is no longer in turmoil in the, way, in the ways in which it still was. When the townspeople come out to see Jesus, the person who caused this loss on their economy for their city, they're also having to stare in the face with these two people who were just demon-possessed. And now they're sane and restored. And yet it's almost like they don't care about that. All they can fixate on is their day-to-day has been robbed. It's been changed. And it's all your fault and we want you out of here. They can't see the miraculous work that Jesus has done in the life of these two individual people. What they should have done is brought out more people to be healed. What they should have done is they should have asked him, Jesus, how in the world 
Were you able to do something that we were not able to do? How is Jesus able to heal these people? How is he able to cast these demons out? See, because when Jesus sends the, the demons into the pigs, the death of the pigs doesn't defeat the evil that oppressed the men or the, or the threat to, that was opposed on the city. That's not what does it. The truth is this, that sending the demons into the herd was just a temporary solution. Ultimately, the final cost for defeating all evil lays not in the death of these imperfect animals or in inviting the demons to then ravage the pigs instead of the people. But no, the ultimate end is in the death of a perfect man, Jesus Christ himself. See, the herdsmen suffered a loss. The city suffered a loss. There's no doubt about that. At the same time, Jesus is going to suffer far more, immensely more. Not long from this event, he is going to invite those demons and all that they represent and Satan himself to come and do their worst to him. And he's going to willingly take it all. He's going to allow evil and death itself to do all that it can. He's going to place all of that on him. He's going to, on the cross, bear our sins. He's going to, he's going to bear our shame And he's going to die for you, for me, for these demoniacs. And then three days later, he's going to get up from the grave. And those things will no longer have power in ways in which they did before. Sin itself will not have power anymore. He bears our punishment on the cross. And if we trust him, when we trust in him, He exercises that same power over sin on our behalf. Which, to me, just makes this so ironic. Like, why the city can't see this? It's just so ironic to me that for the second time he's being begged. He's being begged, but this time to go away. In a sense, the people are saying the same thing that the demons did. Jesus, what do we have to do with you? Why are you bothering us? And here's my favorite part of the story, which Matthew actually leaves out. So I'm kind of cheating here, but, but Matthew leaves this part out. Mark doesn't. And here's the crazy thing that happens. Jesus actually obeys them. He says, if you don't want me here, I will go. I will not impose myself on you. If you can't see what's going on here, I'm going to go. But then he leaves them the most gracious gift he could have. If you don't have it in front of you, you can at least read it for you. In, in Mark, in Mark 5.18, we read this. As he was getting onto the boat to leave, the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might go with him. How about that? Demon possessed now wants to be a disciple of our Lord. But Jesus tells him no. Why? He says, I want you to go home, go to your friends, and tell them what the Lord has done for you. And he does. And the town begins to marvel. See, here's the deal. Jesus gives the people that rejected him the most gracious gift he could have, a missionary. He gives them a missionary. I mean, just imagine for a second. Yes, they they dismiss Jesus like nothing, but they're going to have to see that joker every single day and come to terms with the fact that this person has gone 180 from crazy insane to sane with their life disorderly. Now it's completely in order. And they're going to have to, in their minds, come up with a reason for why that is. And this guy is going to keep telling them, I'm telling you, it's Jesus. He's wonderful. Trust him. Now, where do, we, where do we go from here? Let me close. I'm laying in the plane, okay? 
where, where, where do we go from here? Listen, the story that the demoniacs teach us is really this. It's that, every, that, that even the life that feels so out of control, feels so disorderly, feels like so bombarded with problems, Jesus really can bring restoration. He can bring a presence of security and safety that we long for with all of our being. And he's the only one that can. Yes, this episode in particular, Jesus does it like this. It doesn't always work like that in our lives. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes we're having to learn things through that. But he's always with us. He never forsakes us. Because Jesus' power that we see here is the same power he has today. His care and kindness for the demoniacs that we see here is the same care and kindness that he has for us today. And let me just say this as, as we're closing. Look, proof. Let me just say this. Jesus does not restore this individual in a vacuum. Right? He doesn't just fix his life so that his life is fixed. Ultimately, he has a purpose for him. He rescues him so that this person is equipped and empowered then to, then to participate in the rescuing of others. My friends, if you're here and you're like, man, this, this is great, I, but, but me, me and God are good. Awesome. It's wonderful. But remember this. Our salvation is not just for us. It's for others as well. God is calling us to participate in the mission that he's on. And I've just loved so much about what, everything I've heard about mission with you guys. And I just want to encourage you, man, keep it up. Because this is unique. Can I pray for you guys? Father, we thank you for being good and gracious and kind and powerful. Lord, we thank you for this episode and, and Matthew. And we are just, we are people that are finite and we don't have control of our lives. But Father, you do. And you can be a stabilizing, secure presence to us. Father, would we trust that? Would our love and appreciation for you be greater today, uh, possibly, than, than ever before? We love you. We trust you. You are the hero of the story that you're writing. We love you. Amen.